The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, round two of the Premier League. Splurging Chelsea snaffle up Casado and Lavia too. We'll ask how and why, and will we see Moises against Moises at West Ham? We'll be considering if rather than crying wolves, we've actually understated the threat of them and checking out the rest of the weekend's games, including Man City Newcastle. Plus, more toon excitement with the Women's World Cup. Ashes to ashes for Australia's lasses as England reach the final, but what awaits on Sunday? It's the Totally Football Show. Woo to you, listener. I'm here on Thursday, the 17th of August, which is a pretty nice place to be, given that for me it's currently filled with some Duncan Alexander. Hello. All right. Uh, Tom Williams is with us as well. Hello, James. Hello, Tom. And we're joined from all the way down under by Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. G'day, James. Oh, nice. Already blended in with the locals. It's like Kurtz, isn't it? <laughs> in Heart of the Yeah. <laughs> Donald Fisher, more like for him. <laughs> nice. I don't know what you mean by that. Like another of your references has just gone straight <laughs> over my head. Uh, how are you? How are things in Australia there as you build up for this wo- Women's World Cup final, Daniel? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very, very glad I came. It's been brilliant. Um, right. Kind of final countdown now, so it's sort of all hands to the media pump for the next few days. But it's busy and it's brilliant. All right. Have you been able to enjoy some time off? Yeah, I went whale watching this morning Ooh. to see to Tom, see the humpbacks. Tom likes watching whales, don't you? Very good, James. <laughs> Very good. I've never had the pleasure of watching whales with an with an H. Okay. How, did, how many did you see? I hope it's not family, about the numbers, is it? But it's a pod. Isn't no. It a pod? We, well, yeah. Normally, you kind of go and find different pods. We just watched a family of four kind of followed them along the coast, and it was right. glorious. Bit the creepy. kids sort of playing, and mum and dad walking slowly along. All right. Water, sorry, hang on a second. Walking whales. This is a <laughs> this, this is a revelation. Uh, I'm sure you've seen, seen walking whales on more than one occasion, Tom. Yeah, yeah, Again, back to that one. The last World Cup, but Message yeah. I want to take from uh, Daniel there is: uh, listener, stick with one pod. Don't go looking for other ones. Yeah, nicely done, James. Are we uh, we talking humpbacks? I'm guessing. Yeah, classic humpback. Tail out the water, fins out the water, rolling round, air blowing out, lovely stuff. Magnificent. Magnificent. We're going to be talking in entirely different terms about uh, England's Lionesses and their performance Wednesday against Australia and uh, what to expect in the big one Sunday against Spain later on. But uh, we're here to do the Premier League Match Day 2 preview thing today. So let's first of all check out the fixtures. Matchy 2 begins with Nottingham Forest against Sheffield United on Friday night, but it's not on the telly. Saturday, Fulham take on Brentford in the West London Prodigy Derby, then Liverpool are up against Bournemouth. Last season, the Scotty Parker 9-0 game there. Wolves, who were unlucky to lose 1-0 at Man United on Monday, go to Brighton while United themselves visit Spurs. That's at 5.30 on Saturday. And then, conveniently timed at 8pm Saturday night, Man City, Newcastle. Sunday sees Villa host Everton and West Ham take on Chelsea. And Monday, the round concludes with Crystal Palace against Arsenal. Luton Burnley, where's that, listener? Uh, It's been postponed because Kenilworth Road is still being refurbished. We're going to begin with Man City, Newcastle. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Now. He's the one who can cross it, remember? And Shearer, no problem, not nil. 
September 2000, a faraway time when your parents were young and carefree and filled their heads with the likes of Brad and Jen and playing Snake on their Nokias, according to a Year 2000 page I just read. <laughs> Number one in the pop charts, well, that would be Against All Odds, the travesty of a Westlife Maria Carey cover, that is, not Phil's glorious original that we're playing you instead. And uh, September 2000 was also the last time that Newcastle United won away at Manchester City. George Ware was playing for City that day, as was Haaland. Uh, his dad, Arthur Inga, of course. But 23 years on, a victory is something they've yet to reproduce. Well, we're going to see. We're going to see this Saturday evening if uh, this time around it's going to be any different. Does anyone remember that game, September 2000? I'll be honest, no. Right. Uh, I can barely remember George Ware playing for, for City. That's the thing. I mean, he played for Chelsea. It's like a Premier League journeyman, George Weah. Um, he played in a team. Paolo Wanchok, uh, yeah. Paul Dickov, who yeah. you'll recall, Tommy Wright in goal. Newcastle's uh, side, a little bit more familiar. Shea Given between the posts. Gary Speed, Robert Lee, Kieran Dyer, Kevin Gallagher, and one I mean, Alan Shearer. Obviously, September 2000 is only just over a year since City obviously came up from what's now League One. So mm. they went straight up again. So it was a time of of churn and turmoil at City. Mm. Whereas Newcastle were, I guess, at the... Zenith? Well, they weren't at their mid-90s peak, but they were about to approach their Bobby Robson rise again, weren't they? So uh, kind of Between the Keegan and mm, Robson eras. Mm, there's quite a lot between these clubs. Obviously, Chad Keegan. Mm. Um, yeah, so... Anything else? Shea Given. Shea Given. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see this Saturday night. 18 times they've been to the Etihad. They've never won once, but... A lot of excitement right now on Tyneside about the new look Magpies, especially after the demolition of Villa. Let's hear now from the Athletics' George Corkin on how the mood is in the northeast. George, thank you so much for being with us. You're so incredibly welcome. <laughs> nice. What a start last weekend. It was a great time to be talking about Newcastle, eh? Oh, it was unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I sort of as journalists as fans you sort of go through the summer watching those horrific friendly matches in which no one's really doing very much and think to yourself well it's going to be a tough start to the season Aston Villa they look great oh god I don't know about that and then they somehow at the end of that match I've come away from thinking that Villa will have a good season but that Newcastle still managed to absolutely blow them away they were they were incredible they're they're kind of they're kind of finding new ways to surprise you every step of the way and um, yeah it was a phenomenal atmosphere and brilliant performance. Last season saw the Magpies crack the top four what's the expectation now after the Villa game of what they could do this year George? Well, I've been sort of thinking about this a lot. I mean, I, the the general consensus, if 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 there is such a thing, seemed to be that Newcastle might might dip a tiny bit this season. Perhaps that's not the right word, but, but with you know Champions League to look at, with other teams getting their act together, uh, and all the rest of it, that perhaps there was there would be a little bit of consolidation this time. You know, never been in the Champions League before, never coached there, most of their players never been there. And then, and then they did that to Villa, and suddenly it feels like uh, no option should be off the table. Um, you know, I I sort of thought that fifth or sixth would be would be a brilliant, you know, brilliant end result for them this season in the light of everything that I've just said. I'm not going to switch from that after after one game. I think that would be, I think that would be daft. But you know. It doesn't really matter what my prediction is. I'm, I think most fans are just enjoying watching them and being part of the being part of the crazy ride. Brilliant. 
it is a tough opening to the season, not just Villa last week, uh, who they dispatched with ease, but Liverpool and Brighton coming up in the next few weeks. And this weekend, arguably the hardest fixture of the entire season, away to Manchester City. Can Newcastle beat City this weekend? Can they stay top of the league? Well, I mean, I've, I've always thought that, that, you know, the early part of the season is arguably the best time to play City. I, I mean, I'm not sure about, so sure about that after after last weekend, but the kind of theory always be, you know, it, it, to me seems that they play so late because their players are so good, so they're in the Champions League final or thereabouts, and therefore they kind of tend to use those early season games a bit like their pre-season. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure whether that, whether that's a valid... Uh, argument or not, I do think this is a great. It's the it's the ultimate test for Newcastle. I've been I've been to both their last couple of uh, away matches at City when they've been comprehensively beaten uh, both times. But I just think it's yeah, it's the ultimate gauge for where they for where they are. I reckon Newcastle haven't won at City since the days of Main Road in September two thousand. Is this based on what you saw last season and last weekend? Is this the best Newcastle side since then? I mean, again, this is a conversation I've had. This this might be the best Newcastle squad I've ever seen, and I think the, the you know the reason I would say that is that for the first time there is genuine depth. I mean, if you go back to the mid nineties and early two thousands, they had an absolutely wonderful wonderful team for a lot of that time. But you know, to see Newcastle now have the array of options that they had last weekend, they've got a really strong sixteen seventeen players now and I think that was the thing seeing players like Harvey Barnes and Callum Wilson come onto the pitch against Villa to see Elliot Anderson who's arguably had a better pre-season than anybody else in a Newcastle shirt come on right at the end to see Sean Longstaff who drove the team last season come come onto the pitch in the second half I mean that's the kind of exciting thing for me that you know you're not just reliant on 11 pretty decent players they've actually got a phenomenal uh, squad now and it's got balance you know it's got it's kind of got competition in most places except arguably uh, a couple of places in defense which they look like they're they're kind of rectifying now and yeah that's the thing they've got they've got the chance to 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 bludgeon teams from the outset but also to change matches with who they can bring on mm. do you think they're going to be trying to bludgeon city then on saturday yeah, I mean, I I would fully expect them to have a go. That's the way they play, and they they've got players who are who are capable of causing, you know, causing problems. How doesn't leave them open, and so you know there has to be a degree of there has to be a degree of common sense in the way they play. But they're an attacking, front-footed team, and I'm sure they'll do that do that kind of style at City. Brilliant. Looking forward to seeing that, George. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're very welcome. George Corkin, who, of course, you can follow on theathletic.com. Magnificent. Daniel, what do you think, then? Newcastle, top of the league, can they stay there with a historic win at the Etihad? I think they're in the rudest health they've ever been in, and if you talk of squad depth, and, and George mentions that, um, I think there, there will be a fatigue issue this season, but it's clearly not going to come in until the Champions League starts, and they have to think about what's their strongest team for both competitions at the moment they just seem to be a kind of free-flowing attack whereby you can't really predict or guess where everyone's going to turn up Anthony Gordon started really well which they needed Alexander Izak is one of the form attackers in the Premier League and they now have this new midfield where Sandro Tonali doesn't just seem able to 
be the complete midfielder himself, but also release Bruno Guimaraes to do what he wants to do as well. And yeah, I don't, there's no there's no reason for fear whatsoever. City have played in Europe in the Super Cup this midweek. Uh, they're obviously without Kevin De Bruyne. I think it is a good time to play them. I, I agree. I think they can be a little bit staccato at the start of the season. And yeah, I think Newcastle, this fixture last season was a kind of sort of shootout at both grounds. It was a kind of shootout who could kind of outgun the other. And uh, particularly in the home game, Newcastle did that brilliantly. I think that 3-3 draw. So why not a repeat of that? Yeah, and as Daniel says, and that three-three draw was exactly a year ago this weekend, Ooh. and it was. Um, what was stage, number one, Tom? What was number one? Off the top of my head, I can't remember. If you were to play it to me, would I even recognise it? I doubt it. That random fixture computer not. by DJ Mysterious. But again, similar circumstances. City early in the season, you know, feeling their their way into the campaign, hadn't yet hit their straps, um, and Newcastle, you know, really flew at them were leading 3-1 with with half an hour to go and you know and then city managed to managed to um to wrestle their way back into the game and again you know city going into this off the back of quite an arduous midweek fixture against severe in in in, this, in the UEFA super cup on what was obviously a very warm evening in uh, in Athens mm. um, and Newcastle flying on the back of that performance against Villa I think if if I was to apply a small caveat to that Villa game, it would be that I wouldn't describe it as a freak result because I think Villa were, sorry, I think Newcastle were worthy winners. I'm not sure that they were that much better than Villa. I think it was the kind of game that can happen and it put me in mind a little bit of um, Everton thrashing Brighton at the Amex at the end of last season. When you have one team who are schooled in playing in a very kind of proactive front foot way, and things go amiss and they don't change their approach, which is what happened to Brighton and what happened to Villa, you then run the risk of getting picked off on the counter-attack, which is exactly what Newcastle did. So, you know, obviously an excellent start to the season, fantastic performance, but perhaps didn't reflect exactly the the kind of, you know, the, the full pattern of the game. All right. Well, we'll get a measure of Newcastle this weekend, no question. Man City, who Wednesday night won the European Super Cup, much like their... English Super Cup, a.k.a. the Community Shield performance. It was a 1-1 draw, uh, followed by a penalty shootout. This time they they won uh, on penalties. Uh, KDB, perhaps uh, the, the big news, though, that will be on City supporters' minds. He's out for four months, is the news. He needs surgery on that hamstring injury that he's been carrying since the Champions League final. He did miss most of the 18-19 season when City won a domestic treble. However, back then... They had options like Gundogan and Mares. I, th- I think the, the problem for City when it comes to De Bruyne is the supply line to Haaland. Obviously, when he wasn't um, in the team as much in 2018-19, they had other options. Mm. There are other players who do similar things to De Bruyne, um, but they're generally left-footed players. In terms of you know obvious replacements, Bernardo Silva would be one absent against Sevilla because he was ill. I think with the form of Cole Palmer, he increasingly looks like a a credible option to start on the right-hand side. City are also being linked with players like Jeremy Doku at Rennes. But you look at that, the classic City goal from last season, it was De Bruyne putting in those crosses from the classic De Bruyne position, um, deep on the right-hand side, whipping in towards the back post. And as a very left-footed striker, it's, it's a lot easier for Haaland to attack crosses low crosses that come from his right because they're coming 
onto his open left foot. They're coming across his body. You think about the goals that he scored, and okay, it doesn't it doesn't matter so much if they're if they're headers, but you think about the goals that he scored on the volley last season when the crosses came from the left. He's either having to sort of contort himself and attack the ball with the outside of his left foot in midair, which he did in the Champions League against Dortmund, I think it was, or he's having to sort of get ahead of the ball and then score these quite complicated overhead kicks. Um, and, and so I think it's very difficult for City to replicate that precise aspect of, of De Bruyne's game. They have other players, you know, they have an awful lot of very talented, creative players, but but that I think will be problematic. And I, and I think we, we saw that a bit against, against Sevilla. Haaland wasn't really in the game very much. And then the last sort of 10, 15 minutes, City really got on top and, and they were really pinning Sevilla back. And I think there was a sense that they probably deserved to win. But it will be harder for them to, to supply Haaland in the way they did last season without De Bruyne in the team. Gotcha. Duncan? Just the, the De Bruyne thing, sort of mentioned it the other day, but it's surprising given that it was said after the Champions League final that it was a bad injury, that they kind of just brought him back at the start of the season. You'd have thought... You know, he, he'd been playing with it before that anyway. He, uh, if the surgery was, you know, on the verge of being necessary, surely it would have been better to do that over the summer. Um, but yeah, it, is, it, it will be a big loss. Um, I, the Super Cup was... I, Haaland's funny, isn't it? Because he, he really does not do community Super Cups in any way. He, he refuses to score in them, and I'm sure he'll he'll score the weekend. But you think? he was really enjoying the penalties. Like all the other penalties that were going in, he was just absolutely... I've never seen a player enjoy a penalty shootout more than Haaland did against Sevilla. What was he doing? Just really excited. Every time Grealish did a sort of unusual straight run and then and then curved it and shuffled a bit and Harlan was doing this and just it was absolutely just yeah, how, how would you describe for, for the benefit of what you just done with the your fingers please, Duncan, he was the, the thing where you put your two first fingers and just sort of wave it around the thing that Zidane did when Ronaldo scored his overhead yeah the whole, it's very French isn't it oh right okay yeah mm. finger, do they click clackers. as well do you get them to click you couldn't audibly hear it over the crowd but I'm, I'm imagining yes yeah mm. alright well Will it all click for City, Stroke, Newcastle, etc.? We'll find out about it late on Saturday. But hold on, everyone, because here comes Daniel. <laughs> I was just going to say on, on De Bruyne, I mean, he is 32 now. What? Uh, and he's now had... He's older than Jordan really... Shaqiri, which always surprises people. Yeah, he's um, he's had this hamstring injury is clearly a problem now, and surgery will aim to solve that. But it's also, it is worrying that it's now affected two seasons in a row and therefore potentially, you know, he's in the veteran stage of his career, definitely. And I think if City do try and look to replace them or, or buy a new player this season, it probably does have to be someone to step into his shoes. It might be Cole Palmer, as Tom said, and that would be a very easy and ideal replacement. But yeah, it's a shame. It does feel like these injuries are becoming more and more frequent. Mm. Uh, Tom, the Jeremy Doku move that you mentioned, how real is that and what role would he... Uh, fulfill what what kind of thing would he bring well he's a bit of a throwback right winger in that he is a extremely quick very skillful quite short right-footed wide player who invariably at Rennes has, has, has played on the right or, or off the right and and I think he he would he would give City uh, uh, an explosiveness on that side of the pitch um, and uh, I mean assuming that that's where Guardiola would play him but I think he would I think he would be the, the Mares replacement I'm not sure he's necessarily someone who would come in and 
you know, nail down a first team play straight away. Um, I think initially he'd probably be a bit of an impact player. But yeah, very exciting player. He was fantastic for Rennes at, at the weekend in what, what may have been a farewell appearance. And yeah, just another example of City, despite being the best team in Europe, arguably the greatest English team of all time, just being able to go out and sign the world's outstanding young centre-back in Josko Gvardiol and a £50 million, you know, Belgian wonder kid. Mm. Um and you know, just get even even stronger than they were. No, oh, indeed. Although those figures chump change to the likes of Chelsea, the team we're going to be talking about next. The Premier League is back, and the Athletic Football Podcast is your essential football companion this season. Whether it's dissecting Chelsea's astronomical spending, assessing Spurs in a post-Harry Kane era, or the growing impact of Saudi Arabia's riches, we'll be there four days a week this season as we get to the heart of the biggest stories. Join me, Ayo Akinwalere, and the Athletics' esteemed roster of writers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the usual podcast spaces. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. All right, last weekend's Chelsea-Liverpool clash uh, was uh, in part quite thrilling. A free-flowing end-to-end affair that underlined for many observers both teams' urgent need to get a defensive midfielder. Luckily, there were two available, so Chelsea bought both of them. Uh, Romeo Lavia uh, joining Moises Casado at Stamford Bridge. Uh, wow. I mean, there's the how, there's also the the why. Numbers-wise, Casado is a British record, £115 million, I read, but that beats the previous high point, which was £106 million also, of course, from Chelsea for Enzo Fernandez. Uh, briefly, for anyone who's confused about the fact that Chelsea have been able to spend almost a billion in 18 months, does anyone want to break this one down? I read a great piece on The Athletic about it, so I feel well-positioned to do James, so. James, you have the floor, please. <laughs> Amortisation, whereby you it's the salaries that count, more than the transfer fees, so you just spread them over loads of years, boom, you know this listener. But the other thing that they're doing is shipping out players with high wages, which helps, and also what the Italians love to call plus valenzi and led to the catastrophic economic breakdown of many big clubs over there, but in no way regard that as a worrying thing, Chelsea fans, where you basically register all your sales on this year's accounts, but hold over all your acquisitions for a future, because <laughs> that's just some other time, in the words of Lou Reed. It's a sort of English version of Barcelona's levers, isn't it? I suppose, um, yeah. Hmm. Well, they did. They did make some money back uh, this summer. Of course, they've sold what about two hundred fifty million. Yeah, so that helps. That helps. Uh, the how is obviously uh, they've got top people who've, who've who've put this together for them. Should we focus on the why? Why do they need both Lavia and Caicedo? They, they, they need those midfielders. I think is fair to say they they in, since the beginning of twenty twenty three they've lost Jorginho, they've lost Kovacic, they've lost Kante, they've lost Loftus Cheek. And there will, because this is Chelsea, there'll always be a player you've forgotten. 
and you know the starting midfield last weekend was was Carney Chukwuemeka, who is certainly a player for the future, if not now. Connor Gallagher was there, and then I'm not quite sure how he fits in if Chukwuemeka is in the team as well. I can see a midfield three of, of Enzo, Moses Caicedo and Romeo Lavia being very successful. Um, the question is whether it's can learn on the job quick enough because, as you explained, James, they're spending the money now and they kind of need the success now. There's not an awful lot of time for bedding in here. They really need to finish in the top four now. And Lavia is young, Caicedo is at a new club. I think it's fair to say with the players that Brighton have sold and the, the coaches that, and managers that have left Brighton specifically for Chelsea, that there's an acclimatisation period and it doesn't always work because Chelsea don't always have the patience for it. Which leaves Enzo Fernandes as the, the longest serving and the most, you know, the, the, the senior midfielder at Chelsea, which is a remarkable thing given he signed in January. That's remarkable. How much of a problem do you see this being for Pochettino or will he welcome all these acquisitions? I mean, he said he doesn't want a massive squad, which, you know. Do you remember when uh, the fellow last year, Graham Potter, said, no, I'm happy with these, these players, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was an era where they were struggling to get training going because they had too many players. I think the squad is a lot more manageable now. They, as we saw last weekend, they, they did need more midfield options. And I think Caicedo will fit in pretty well. I mean, you know, there's a reason everyone wanted to buy him. He's an outstanding talent. And I think... We saw Fernandez playing a bit further forward against Liverpool and he looked really good doing that. So I think, you know, as someone who predicted Chelsea to come second, uh, mm. I'm pleased that they've bolstered the squad. But I mean, it was, it was a good piece of analysis about Fernandez on Monday Night Football on Sky um, and, and looking at the fact that he was playing further forward than we perhaps would have expected. And I think the expectation when he came in was that he would be a deep-lying midfield organiser Whereas in actual fact against Liverpool, he was playing almost as a number 10. There was quite a lot of space between him and, and the centre-backs. He wasn't the one collecting the ball from the centre-backs and, and getting Chelsea going. He was sort of the next link in the chain, if you like. And so if that's going to be his role, then Caicedo is, on paper at least, the perfect foil because he does play deeper and he will be the player who's collecting the ball from the centre-backs and the goalkeeper and turning and, and getting Chelsea on the front foot. So I think we should probably think about those two as you know very much... Uh, Complimentary. You know, as complimentary I mean, as the most expensive complimentary midfield <laughs> duo in football history. Caicedo is a great defensive midfielder, but he's also creative as well. You know, mm. he created a lot of chances last season. So, you know, huge caveats. But if that midfield clicks, it could be a great midfield for years to come. Good Lord. Chelsea, here's a stat that I find surprising, have won precisely five of their last 30 matches in the league. They'll have the opportunity to try and improve that this Sunday at 4.30 when they visit West Ham, uh, a side who, are take, who have a rather different transfer philosophy, at least so far, uh, news that Harry Maguire won't be joining the Hammers. Uh, any prospects for the Hammers, do you think, uh, given Chelsea's woeful record and still finding their feet under Poch, etc., Daniel? It's, it's normally a good fixture for West Ham. It, it kind of gets them up for it. it. It feels like West Ham need a fixture like this to kind of really get themselves up for the season because, yes, Declan Rice has gone. Yes, there is clearly this sort of slightly ominous disconnect between David Moyes uh, and Tim Stide and their new sporting director. It, it, it seems that Moyes would like tried and trusted Premier League, um, your Maguire's, your Ward Prowse's. Um, and, yeah, and Steiden has, has, or Steiden, sorry, has, has been touting Ligue 1 and Bundesliga signings 
for West Ham, the worry is that they end up with kind of a half and half scenario, and that does sort of seem where like where they're at at the moment. Maguire not coming in. It sounds like maybe Mavropanos coming in from the Bundesliga. It's they don't instantly strike as David Moyes players, and if this is going to be David Moyes' last season, which it, it possibly is at West Ham, um, it, that disconnect is not ideal. You mm. need West Ham are brilliant when everyone is kind of fighting in that same cause. They're not, and we saw this at the beginning of last season when the players come in who don't quite fit Moyes's either Moyes's temperament or kind of Moyes's style. And yeah, if that continues, then I expect them to struggle. Mm. All right, Tom. Liverpool, meanwhile, having missed out on Lavia. And Caicedo, who are they going to bring in? Well, so the word on the street yes. is that they are trying to sign Wataro Endo, yes. Japanese international holding midfielder from Stuttgart, mm. uh, 30 years old, season campaigner, obviously somewhere down the list of priorities. But when Chelsea, you know, keep stealing all the players you want right. to sign, I guess you have to, you know, you have to revise your So as long as Chelsea don't read targets, Fabrizio Romano's uh, Twitter feed, they might get that signing fine. over the line. Uh, Grace Robertson, uh, who's always worth a follow on your social media, making the point, she was asking how uh, Rodri is so able, his remarkable ability to foul without picking up yellow cards. And then uh, Grace says, well, I guess that's the mark of a great defensive midfielder. And then she goes and looks at the, the, the numbers for who are the players who committed the most fouls without getting booked. And your man Endo is top five European leagues. He's like top three. So, hmm. All right. Liverpool are facing Bournemouth this weekend. Ooh, 9-0 just under a year ago. You remember that? Scott Parker's last game in charge. This potentially might be a very different affair. For a start, five of those goals in the 9-0 were either scored or assisted by Bobby Firmino, who's not there anymore. And also, well, Iraola is there with the Cherries and has the team looking pretty tasty. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're going to be one of the most fascinating teams to watch in the Premier League this season. The only slight issue is that in early season they've got a number of injuries to particularly to the players that they bought in January, uh, who kind of aided that shift in style from, or kind of prepared Iriola to take over because he wants to be really high energy, he wants to be counter-attacking, he wants to be attacking. And I don't think they can do that just yet because you looked at their midfield last weekend and it had kind of Joe Rothwell was there, I think Philip Billing was playing like this sort of withdrawn role and he likes to be higher up the pitch, but they've lost Lerma. There's a few more things I think that need to happen before we see kind of peak Iriola Bournemouth. Uh, and I think because of that, they'll probably be fairly pragmatic at Anfield this weekend. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm really looking forward to look, seeing Bournemouth after the first international break, basically. I see. His Ryan Vallecano side beat both Real Madrid and Barcelona last season. So not a man afraid of the big-name opponents. Will Mo Salah be starting after his remarkable... Hand strapping, stripping, strop at uh, Stamford Bridge. <laughs> yeah, you'd imagine so. Mm. Um, the Liverpool Bournemouth games last year were a weird false door, and obviously Liverpool won nine 0 Never win nine 0 No one wins the league when you win nine 0 Proven. And then the the game down uh, on the south coast came after their Liverpool beat in United seven 0 and everyone said, "Well, they're." They've solved the issues now, and they hadn't. They lost one 0 to Bournemouth, and then lost four one to City in the following week. So. Um, it's an interesting game, but I think Liverpool are a team that are still, you know, as, as we've discussed, searching for a solution for the season. And they might, probably will get a decent result against Bournemouth at the weekend, but I don't think you should read much into it as last season showed. It's okay. quite handy that Salah had that strapping around his wrist when mm. he came off, because if you're throwing a strop and you want to sort of physically 
display your displeasure having a piece of strapping around your mm. wrist that you can rip off piece by piece is ideal because apart from that you've got the classic obviously if you're the skipper you take you take the armband off and, mm. and hand it over to someone in a, in a you know a stroppy manner the old roll your socks down take your shin pads off right mm. but also when you come off often you're handed you a jacket a bib or, something. or yeah. a bib and you throw that down mm. are you suggesting that he employed the same tactics that many of us did in yesterday with uh, strip poker where you would you know wear your entire wardrobe and many other people's as well daniel my you're not is that, yeah my theory is that luxury players continue to wear gloves into kind of march april time just so they can mm, do that kind nice. of throwing of the gloves onto the floor and you mm. do get more like strapping i i mean you know i'm not saying that these are players who are pretending to be injured but i feel like you see more players wearing strapping and then players who will hit a, a decent run of form and then keep the strapping the way that jamie vardy did the way that karim benzema does has worn like a piece of strapping on one of his wrists for years now mm. and presumably does need it but it kind you, of like it's become like more of a, a thing would you include Raul Jimenez and his headgear in that I'm not sure that's exactly the same okay no. Petr Cech is though did he his uh, was, Victor Osimhen I think he's he's the uh, you know the kind of Batman-esque uh, yeah wore it all season that long was, who yeah, was the, still he, scored headers and stuff right because he, when he took it off playing for Nigeria they crashed out of the Africa Cup of Nations I might be getting my details messed up but anyway things went badly without it ergo he continued to wear it mm, anyway Bournemouth-Liverpool that's coming up this weekend uh, next let's talk about Man United Hello listeners, if you're someone who is just too busy for a regular length podcast in the morning, we have something for you. The Daily Football Briefing brings you bang up to date with the biggest football stories in just over 10 minutes. Whether it's David Ornstein on the latest big signing or Matt Slater on a takeover saga that won't go away, we'll bring you right up to speed all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the usual platforms and make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Man United, much in the news this week. We get into some of the... Uh some of the reasons in a second or two, but Monday night, since our last show, they scraped a 1-0 win against Wolves. Wolves, who absolutely dominated the shot count, with 23 attempts on goal, six of them on target, and should, of course, have the chance to equalise from the spot late on when Anana clattered Kaladzic in stoppage time. The penalty wasn't given. VAR was not, the screen was not consulted and as a result of that referee Simon Hooper VAR uh, fellow Michael Salisbury and the assistant VAR fellow Richard West have all been given week two off Daniel you're in favour of coming down hard on referees <laughs> no I mean it, 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 it was a penalty decision it was a mistake I, I'm not actually sure what it seems a very sort of childhood punishment to be like right you're, you're banned from refereeing for a week 
it's sort of like go to dinner, go to bed with no dinner. Um, you don't get a game. It's it's preferable to me than it is relegating them for championship, hmm. which just feels like such a like a. It just kills both parties. It says to the championship, your football's not worthy. It says to championship fans, you get our castoffs while they're on the naughty step, and it says to. Uh, it doesn't really help the referee either. But uh, yeah, I just think yeah, it was a mistake. It clearly was a mistake. I'm not sure it does anything banning them for a week though. I don't know if that helps anyone. Hmm. Uh, Man United, meanwhile, were dominated by a Wolves side that had changed managers just days before uh, this game. Do you foresee them being better this time around when they visit Tottenham Hotspur? It will be hard for them to be any worse. I mean, they were absolutely dreadful. Um, I think it's one of the most um, remarkable results that I can remember in terms of a team being dominated to that extent and still managing to win. Mm. And one thing that surprised me was that when United announced the Mason Mount signing, I think a lot of the focus was about how he would fit into the team in an attacking sense, how he would play alongside Bruno Fernandes, etc. But I remember thinking, well, that's a great move from a defensive point of view as well, because he's, you know, such a hard worker. One of the things that stands about him the most, I think, as a footballer is that in addition to all his, in addition to all his qualities as a creative player he always puts a shift in always on the front foot with the pressing and I, and I remember thinking you know Casemiro Mount Fernandez that's an extremely energetic midfield three that's going to cover a lot of grass and, and going to put their opponents under a lot of pressure and Wolves just ran through them at will I mean Matthias Cunha I'd, I've, I've rarely seen an opposition player monster an opposition midfield at Old Trafford single-handedly in the way that he did. It felt like every time he kind of got the ball with a bit of space inside his own half, he was beating players for fun. And I don't know whether that was because United are, are, are slightly behind in their physical preparation or, or perhaps, you know, they're, they're sort of planning to, to peak later in the season or something, but it felt like there was a real kind of deficit between the fitness levels that the two teams showed. And I, I think given the personnel in particular, it, that was a very curious aspect of the game. Do you think we've all got it wrong about Wolves, who were widely forecast to struggle really badly? Yeah. I think Gary Neal's almost gone in there and gone wasn't really expecting to get this job. I'm confident in my abilities as a coach. And also, he actually said this last week, don't expect us to play, or Wolves to play as I did at Bournemouth because it's a different squad with different set of skills. And I think looking at the Wolves team is actually better than I think a lot of people remembered. Although, isn't this classic Wolves in that they had loads of chances yeah, and didn't they score? they still need to sort out their, you know, their finishing. It right. Is, it is been bad for a couple of seasons but in terms of the creativity and the you know like as you say Cunha traveled almost 200 meters with the ball which is like massive Old Trafford it was extraordinary and um yeah I'm a lot of people have put Wolves in their bottom three for the start of the season and now again I I meant I meant 10th but it's that classic thing of basing Mm. pre-season predictions almost purely on the transfer window right. which we do an awful lot in this country and when you know when a team is felt to have won the transfer window obviously they're going to get better mm. and when a team haven't signed any players obviously they're going to struggle but after Lopetegui came in Wolves had a really good second half of the season yes we know that they don't score enough goals I mean that's been a problem for quite a long time they're still a very good team with a lot of very good players and I suppose it's also players who we don't know all that much about because you've got young Portuguese players young Brazilian players many of whom have got very similar sounding names Mm -hmm. and so you look at that team sheet and perhaps it doesn't leap out at you but 
just because a team haven't necessarily signed five or six new players, if they've kept the players they had, mm. which I think in the main Wolves have... Mm. Well, I mean, well, actually, Wolves have, I mean, Wolves have lost a few players. This is, yeah. this is true. But, I mean, it's it, just because you've not signed loads of players, that doesn't yeah. guarantee you're going to have a bad season. Tom, you're absolutely right. Basing your season predictions off the transfer window is wrong. Basing them on the first 90 minutes of the campaign, 100% No issues with that whatsoever. Yeah. Predict right. away. Okay. Daniel? I think the the reality is is that Julian Lopetegui is probably a better coach than Gary O'Neill, but he didn't want to be at Wolves. He'd made that pretty clear all summer, and you're far better having a, a maybe a less capable coach than you are a coach who is making a toxic mood because he doesn't necessarily want to be there and he's frustrated by the transfer dealings. If you're a player in training, in pre-season training, and you hear that the manager is annoyed because he's not allowed to replace you, that's not necessarily going to sit well. Gary O'Neill has already shown last season that he's gone into Bournemouth at the end of a transfer window and said, you know, this is what I've got. Let's work together and let's mm. do something. And it, it worked brilliantly. And right now he's a better fit than Lopetegui. Wolves taking on Brighton this weekend, which sounds like a tough one as for Man United as I mentioned at 5.30 on Saturday they're going to be at Spurs anyone got a bold call on, on that game Spurs looked good no in their draw last weekend they looked I mean they looked different they looked like a team who wanted the ball which we've not been able to say for a little while and I think that's why sort of you know vibes from Spurs Twitter were, were, were positive because Madison was on the ball a lot and and you know they, they kind of dominated the game in, in terms of in terms of possession but I, I felt they looked a little bit toothless and you know Richarlison has been given the unenviable task of stepping into Harry Kane's shoes uh, a guy who despite being Brazil's first choice number nine only scored was it one Premier League goal last season mm. I think so I mean as good as he is it's going to take Spurs time to to adapt to, to the loss of their greatest ever goal scorer. So although, I, I mean, you know, you can see what, what Ange Postacoglu wants to do. And, and I think he, I think he's generally got the fans on board. And I think, you know, after the, 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 the successive miseries of the um, yeah, Mourinho and uh, Nuno Espirito Santos and Antonio Conte era, just having a coach who wants to play this kind of football mm. is going to be positive and welcome, but it, it will take time for things to click. OK. They don't have a great record against United, just one win in the last nine meetings. Uh, just to finish off this part of me, while the, the, the big story that's kind of breaking at the moment has been since Wednesday afternoon about Man United regards Mason Greenwood, who's been out of the team since the... Charges of attempted rape and actual bodily harm uh, way back in October 2022. Now, Greenwood himself has denied the charges. The Athletic had a exclusive that uh, basically Man United have made the decision to bring Mason Greenwood back. The, the charges were dropped following the withdrawal of a, a witness and, and United have been uh, making up their minds since then what to do. And the words seem to be that they are now in favour and that uh, Ten Hag is in favour of bringing him back in. Uh, this kind of leaked out after the Athletic went to United for a comment. United then put out, I think, a hasty statement saying that they hadn't decided anything. But that does seem to be the way it's heading. Uh, he's not the only player in a similar position. He's not been found guilty of anything. Some may feel that it is unfair, but... I think the key thing with Mason Greenwood, and this is you know, possibly just it's a matter of personal opinion, but once you've heard the tape, uh, it's hard to imagine in any profession, in any walk of life, somebody involved in something like that not being asked to leave the workplace. Uh, and particularly, I say any walk, walk of life, something like a footballer who is, like it or not, a role model, 
if you say that doesn't matter, what message are you sending in terms of what behavior is permissible, what kind of actions are permissible? I, I do understand that there are a lot of other players at other clubs who've been through similar things and who maybe are still playing or maybe still being acquired by other teams. But I think in this case, because that, that tape is so... Uh, yeah, it just seems... And, like the, and the photographs. And the photographs, the photographs too. Well. Yeah, but, uh, seems yeah. to be a, a, there seems to be a sense from some Manchester United fans who perhaps do want him back that... <laughs> That playing, being a footballer for Manchester United is like is a right because you've got talent. It's not. It's a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility, and a responsibility to act in a way that upholds the name, the good name of the club, that um, provides an example to young supporters, that provides a, a, you know, a standard of decency which the audio and video, and photographs suggest strongly that he hasn't met. And the other thing I, I would say is. You know, Manchester United are now so adamant that they haven't made a decision yet, but we are a long, long way down the line here, time-wise, and there comes a point where, by not making a decision for so long, becomes a decision in itself. That indecision is itself a decision, because this should have happened, this should have been cleared up. Whoever they needed to consult, whoever they needed to talk to, should have been cleared up a long time ago. Right. Uh, just to say that a lot of Man United fans that, I, that I've seen on, on social media have been very strongly against the return of... Mason Absolutely. I feel like there's a there's a bit of a, a split between match going fans and sort of on online fans, if you want to put it like that, which is an increasing um, phenomenon in in modern football. I, I get the sense that a lot of match going fans are absolutely sickened by the Mason Greenwood case, and you know, rightly so. Um, and that if he were to play for the club again. I think the kind of reception he would get from the fans of his own club would probably be very hostile in a way that I'm not sure we've ever seen. I can't think of anything I can't think of anything comparable to this. I suspect that, you know, as this period of decision rumbles on, that anger within the fan base will become more and more evident. And as we saw, you know, during the, the Super League, um, fiasco uh clubs get spooked by that you right. know, when they think it's going to you know harm their, their their image in that way that you know they, they they do sometimes change course and i wonder whether that might be where we're heading with this case i mean finally uh, this is bigger than the mason greenwood this is bigger than manchester united because we live in a society and this is not about football and i wish it was but we live in a society that um, whereby a, a very small percentage of complainants on <laughs> on offences such as attempted rape and domestic violence, um, a very small percentage are charged and a, very, a smaller percentage than that are convicted. And it sends a message that even when we have audio and even when we have visual evidence, albeit without the benefit of the full context or any explanation from those involved, we are still not able to make a moral judgment because we because of how good the footballer is. I strongly suspect that if Mason Greenwood was a 17-year-old jobbing academy player whose position at the club was not necessarily... It wasn't, there wasn't an obvious route to the first team, I strongly suspect the decision would be different. And I think the same is at other clubs. This is not just about Manchester United. I can see how this would happen at other clubs. And that's just a huge shame. What does that say about kind of football as a, as a social institution? Mm -hmm. Nothing good, Daniel. 
Uh, we'll move on. We'll move on and touch on the other stuff coming up this weekend, including, of course, the big game you'll be going to Sunday in Australia. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Other matches this weekend in the Premier League. Daniel, Friday night, or your Saturday morning. Mull of Kintyre will be ringing out at the city ground without you there to hear it. As Nottingham Forest prepare to take on Sheffield United. Mm. Oh, last time there was a Premier League match between these two sides at the city ground. What happened? Uh, Forest had their relegation. Well, it was the final day of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Brian Clough's last game mm-hmm. and him kind of broken by addiction in tears on the touchline. Hartfield. Oh, Gale, a free header and a goal for Sheffield United. But might be the final nail in the Forest coffin. My second season as a season ticket holder at the age of six, I would have been then. So that sound you can hear is my heart re-breaking. Sorry about that. All right, we'll move on. Oh, by the way, that game is not on the telly. At least in this country, you can watch it Saturday morning in Australia, I imagine. Uh, it's not on the telly. The reason it's Friday night, it's been moved because of cricket. Moved because of cricket. Um, I mean, sorry, that's out of order. <laughs> moved because of cricket. Uh, there is cricket at Trent Bridge that day. If you are looking for some Friday night football and you are in the UK, Tom, you can see Harry Kane making his Bundesliga debut for Bayern there at Werder Bremen. Or, or you could tune in to see Marseille try and bounce back from ooh. the disappointment of their failure to qualify for the Champions League uh, when they go to promoted Mets. Right. There you go. Beaten by Panathinaikos on penalties in the second leg of their playoff. Yeah, a real sort of ding-dong tie and ding-dong mm. return fixture in that Marseille were dreadful in the away leg uh, in Athens, lost 1-0. Um, and then much better, transformed in the second leg. A couple of goals uh, by Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who is their new grand attaquant. There's this sort of long-running saga at Marseille, this search for a, a, the number nine who's going to lead them to the Sunday Uplands, and they're hoping that this time around it's going to be Aubameyang. Um, and they're 2-0 up, heading into stoppage time, going through. Matteo Genduzzi is penalised for handball after a VAR review. Panathinaikos level the tie from the spot. And then when it comes to penalty shootout, Genduzzi is the only player who doesn't score. So they are out of the Champions League. Wow. OK. Premier League, Fulham take on Brentford. Both West London derbies finished 3-2 to the home side last season. Fact. Everton, who lost at home to Fulham last weekend, go to Villa, who, as we heard before, were beaten by Newcastle. Everton have made two signings in the last week. A Jack Harrison from Leeds, he's recovering from a hip injury at the moment. Also, a striker, Yusuf Chemiti, who's a Portuguese 19-year-old from Sporting. Many thanks to listener Tabao Finds Plus, who re- reposted for our attention Paul Rimmer's earlier post that Sean Dyche, so far this transfer window, has signed Dan Juma, Young, Chermiti, Harrison, and is now just missing the E to complete the set. 
They Deep. also, we should say, yep. they were they were very much in with Forrest for Anthony Alanga earlier this summer. Well, so that... <laughs> he has already tried to do it. They're now in for Hugo Etiquite of Paris Saint Germain. Paris Saint Germain. Yeah. It's a system. It's a system. <laughs> it's a system. Just on a slightly more serious transfer point. Isn't That's not serious? Well, not quite serious. Um, there's a lot of clubs signing injured players this summer. Like oh. Harrison signed for Everton. He's injured. Elise. You get um, them cheap, I suppose. I mean, it's it's probably fine, but it's a slight risk as well. I mm. think. well. Here's a surprising stat, Duncan. You, you're a fan of those. Mm. Only free-scoring Brighton and New Look Newcastle had more shots on target than Everton on match day one. It's true. Mm. I, I mean, mean it, it's, it's the history of the Everton, isn't it? Mm. In in you know last couple of seasons, they create chances. They don't they don't score them. They got one striker who's permanently in the treatment room, and Dominic Calvert Lewin, and then Neil Mopai, who is. Not so reliable. <laughs> mm. All right. Big game for them away at a Villa side who will be without, of course, Tyron Mings and Emmy Wendia, both sidelined likely for the season. A lot of ACLs going around. A lot. Jurian Timber, there's another one for Arsenal who will be facing Crystal Palace on Monday night. What, what's with all the ACLs, Daniel? Well, I, I do wonder. I mean, as football enters its red zone years... Uh, correctly predicted by Arsene Wenger about a decade ago when we sort of flog players to the end point and then hope everything works out. You are more likely to get, the data shows you are more likely to get an ACL injury when your body is and your muscle, leg muscles are overworked. So I, I wonder if it's a thing. It might it might not be, but it, there have been more and more recently, I think. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, there you go. Those are the Premier League fixtures and we'll be back on early Monday morning. Record Sunday night. Our roundup of all the action up too, but not including Arsenal's clash with Crystal Palace. Let's finish off today, though, by talking about the game taking place Sunday in Australia, the Women's World Cup final. Spain taking on England. Can the European champion Lionesses add the world title too? Daniel, I imagine you're going to be there, and I imagine that Wednesday you were at the Australia game. Yeah, both both correct. Yeah, uh, it's it was. I mean, the Australia game was was a phenomenal spectacle. It was a kind of unique atmosphere in that. You could tell it wasn't. There was a huge number of Australians in there, but it wasn't like a cauldron atmosphere. It was a, it was a sort of excited, fervent atmosphere, which reflects Australia falling in love with this football team. Just out in, you know, lunchtime Australian time today, they announced 11.15 million viewers on Channel Seven alone, the free-to-air channel alone. Which how much did it, Lord of the Rings get? Well, it, it, it's the highest ever TV audience in Australia. That's not women's football, that's not football, and that's not even just sport. That's the highest Australian TV audience of all time. Uh, more than it, even Neighbours. More than well, Home and Away. But then they don't watch Neighbours, do they? This is the thing. They is ship, that right? ship it over here. It's for export only. Yeah. Sorry, Daniel, well, just, back to your point. Yeah. Just, add, yeah. just adding in a sort of football Home and Away joke. But, um, yeah, no, there's... It's it is it's extraordinary how quickly and how vastly this country has fallen in love with the Matildas. They have an issue whereby, unlike us, Australia doesn't make as big a deal of the Asian Cup as we do the European Championship. So they probably have quite a long way to wait for for another major tournament that they get into. But it has been genuinely brilliant to see that rise. And thankfully, England knocked them out, so we can do the proper party and beat Spain and win the World Cup. It, how? How amazing, Daniel, is it that England are in the final, given the way that their tournament began, the build-up? What they've done is they've managed to 
deal with those setbacks and absentees and suspensions. And they've turned into a team that, that does two things. Firstly, that other than the China game, who they, you know, they battered because China were awful, they are just better than every team they play, whether that's a Nigeria, whether that's Haiti, or whether that's Australia. They've just been better than everyone they play. And they've also won games pretty much in every way. They've won on penalties. They've won 1-0. They've, they've hammered a team. They've scored the first goal and hung on. They've scored the first goal and then conceded and then won the game. They've conceded first and won the game against Colombia. They've done it the lot now. And they feel that last night they were saying, they, we feel like we've won in every way we need to win now. And that makes our belief irrepressible. We know that Spain are a brilliant team. Kira Walsh and, uh, and Lucy Bronze are, uh, are talking already about we know this Spain team because seven or eight of the starting 11 will be at Barcelona with them. Um, and they feel that they've got a way to win it. There's this unshakable belief under Serena Wiegmann, which it's not arrogance. It's not, you know, it's not complacency. It's just a, a complete sheer will that they want to get the job done. Um, and they were really emotional last night because they got to the, the semi-final in 2015. They got there in 2019. They were sick of being these kind of World Cup bridesmaids. And mm. having got here, they really, really don't want to let it go now. Serena Wiegmann got all the way to the final in 2019 with the Netherlands, of course. That, though, is the only knockout tournament game she's ever lost as a national team head coach. And she's back at the final now. Yeah, she's also only lost once in, in her England tenure, and that was to Australia in April. And she... You could tell last night after the game that she was kind of, even though it was only a friendly defeat in April, she was kind of, I've righted that only wrong so far. Uh, yeah, she is a, a, a relentless coach. She demands a lot from them. And I think in, in certain circumstances, that would be hard for players to deal with. But while they're winning, uh, it just creates this feeling of, of untouchability. Okay. And yeah, Spain, are, Spain are, we should say Spain are excellent. This is, there's, there's, no, there's no overconfidence here. They have their own kind of weird issues in the squad, which we may or may not talk about, but they are a, a very, very good possession-based football team. Are you referring to Georges Vilda? Yeah, the, the maddest story imaginable, really, in the very quick-potted history, 15 players effectively went on permanent strike because of issues they felt they had with Vilda, with the F. A, with the arrangement of training, with the atmosphere in camps. And everyone agreed with them and these 15 players left. And then Georges Wilder went, well, we've got the biggest depth of young talent in world football at the moment, so I'll probably just pick them. And, and he has done. And players like Salma uh, Paraguelo, who has come into the squad and is now one of the stars, wouldn't have played if those players hadn't withdrawn. But the players still don't really like him. You know, they don't celebrate with him after games. They've rejected questions all tournament about this. And then last night on Spanish TV, the head of the Spanish Federation kind of said, you know, I'm sick of people doubting our world-class coach, everything he's been put through by the haters. And that's the only time anyone's mentioned it all tournament. It's a deeply weird scenario. Mm. All right. Well, that's the game coming up on Sunday. And then what, you're flying back Monday, Daniel? Uh, Tuesday morning, I'll right. fly back. I am looking forward to some uh, whale watching. Yeah, some just to, no more whale watching. But uh, Sheffield United, Manchester City next a week on Sunday. All right. What? Well, just leave us with what are you going to miss most about your time at the Women's World Cup in Australia, Daniel? I'd never been to Australia before, and I absolutely have fallen in love with Sydney. We because of how the tournament's fallen for England, we've had two straight weeks in Sydney now, and it is my favourite place on earth. Mm. Have you have you started to take on an Australian accent yet? I guess you've probably not been there long enough. No, look, no. 
Um, <laughs> I start all my sentences with no look, and I end it with an upward inflection, so you can tell I'm Australian. Now? The thing of starting sentences with look is such a kind of... Mm. It's such a kind of alpha thing, isn't it? Is it? I, it must, I wonder what what would become of... Someone should make like a... I mean, maybe not a full feature film, mm. but... Yeah, maybe not that. If you're maybe, a fan maybe of hearing that Australian speak, Tom... But look, James, imagine if every time I addressed you yeah, look, on this podcast, I was like, oh, look... Look, look Tom. Oh, look, James. If you're a fan of hearing Australian speak... Why don't you go can and move I, there? Can I, no, can I urge you to watch the truly outstanding Disney Plus series, uh, Mr. Inbetween? It's beauty. Sure. All about the antics of one Ray Shoesmith. Oh, yeah, I think Trust I've me, listener, you're going to enjoy it. I have heard about it, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Daniel, lovely to see you today. Have a great trip back and look forward to seeing you uh, a little bit closer to home next time around. Look, Tom, thank you for being with us today. If you fancy a bit more Tom Williams and who doesn't, listener... You're also available on the Athletic Football Podcast. Yes, we did a big podcast uh, yesterday about Neymar. Right. Divisive figure that he is. Okay. Um, and ended up being kinder about him and his career and future legacy than I think any of us thought we would or even intended to be. So All right. Join Tom and, 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 and company on their journey into Neymar's career on the Athletic Football Podcast. And Duncan, am I right in saying that very shortly you're going to be Jumping on another podcast yourself. Yeah, I'm on the uh, Athletics Tactics podcast this okay. week. Um, we're going to be doing a little Premier League notebook. We who? Uh, me, Mark Carey, Liam Tharm and Ali hosting as uh, always. And, and what do you, what's your role? Because you don't normally do it. I come in on that one sometimes. Do you? So, yeah. But we're yeah. going to be doing a very deep dive on, on what we can learn from one match day of uh, Premier League football. Are you doing Michael Cox? Uh, no, I could never. Uh, I could never do that. But I will be. You just disagree in... with me, which is half of. The, yeah, know, half, fair. halfway there, really. Fair. That is a good chat. Yeah, I'll be sitting in his seat. But um, yeah. Okay. Anything you want to throw away? No, I have to listen. Okay. But we will be talking about why goalkeepers are now receiving goal kicks rather than taking them. So, if that Ooh, fascinates you, boy, tune in. That. I can't wait. When's that going to be out? Should be out uh, Friday. Or so, no, actually, probably later Thursday. Later so when Thursday. you're listening to this, it's also available. So tuck in. Well, yeah. Especially since this podcast is now finished. We're back early Monday morning, having recorded our weekend thoughts on Sunday night. Do join us for that, listener. For now, many, many thanks to everyone, as I say, and producer Charlie and you, listener. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.